We are going to be in chapters 23 and 24 of the book of Acts. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, uh, we will start on page 932. We've been walking through the book of Acts here for a number of weeks. And as we walked through the book of Acts, there was places where the story slowed down and we could could take our time walking through something that just happened verse by verse by verse, and then, and then all of a sudden it would speed up, and, and a couple of years would pass, sometimes in a single verse. That will happen today, as a matter of fact. And then it'll slow down again, and it will begin to tell us the details of, of what's happening. Here in, in chapters 23 and 24, and, and even a little before in chapter 22, We've come to Jerusalem, and, and the story is, again, slowing down. We're seeing lots and lots of detail. We're, we're filling a number of verses with just this one story of what's happening to Paul as he arrives in Jerusalem. You remember from several weeks back, Paul had set his mind. He had decided he was going to go to Jerusalem and deliver this offering that he had taken for the, from the Gentile churches, that he had taken from the Gentile churches that he was bringing to Jerusalem to those first Jewish believers. And so he wanted to come and drop off this offering in Jerusalem. He wanted to bring unity to the church between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. And then he was going to head out from Jerusalem and he was going to go to visit Rome and ultimately on to Spain. That was his plan. He was, he was adamant. That's where I'm going. That's what I'm doing. In fact, many people came to him and said, Paul, you can't go. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. If you go to Jerusalem, you might even be killed. Don't go. You're going to have your, your hands tied, your hands and feet tied together with your own belt. Agabus came and said to him, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul was set. This is what I'm called to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm dropping off this offering, and I'm going on to Rome and Spain. He was set, I'm going to go. It doesn't matter to me. I'm willing to give my life. I'm willing to be arrested. I'm willing to give my life. I'm willing to be jailed, he said. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And so he arrives in Jerusalem. And when he arrives, he comes, and he comes before James, and he comes before the other Jewish believers, and he he has these men with him that he's brought from the Gentile churches and they have their offering and they, they set their offering on the floor probably right there before them and they begin to give reports of all the things that God has been doing in those Gentile churches, in those churches in Macedonia and all through that area in Asia. And they give that report and they tell him all these things that God is doing. And, and if you remember from a few weeks ago, James and the other believers, they, they hear all that, they glorify God, they rejoice and what God is doing in those churches. They hear all of that, and then they say, but Paul, there's some things that we've been hearing. There's some things that you've, you've maybe been teaching. There's some things that, that the Jewish brothers, the Jewish Christians, they have a problem with some of the things that you've been saying. And so what we're telling you to do, they weren't asking, they were telling him, that he needed to go to the temple, he needed to be purified, he needed to sponsor some of the men who had been taking a vow and were coming out of that vow. He said, uh, they said, we're telling you this is what you need to do in order to be accepted or better accepted by these Jewish Christians as well as the Jews in Jerusalem. And so Paul, not because that's what he believes. We, we've talked about what he believes. The book of Galatians is written about what he believes about the law. 
It's not because of, of what he thinks about the law, but because he wants to bring unity. He's willing to do whatever it takes to bring unity to the church, and so he accepts their directions, he accepts their instructions, he goes to the temple, and he sponsors these men, he begins to purify himself, he's there for just a few days in Jerusalem. And before that first week is over, before he's even able to finish his purification, before he's even able to finish this sponsorship that he has of these men that are coming out of the Nazarite vows, there's some Jews from Asia. We think they're the Jews that, that were in Ephesus with him that caused the giant riot in Ephesus that wanted to kill him on the boat to, to, to get to Passover, which is why he didn't travel on that boat. Those Jews from Ephesus spot Paul in Jerusalem. And they say, this man is making the temple unclean. They grab him. They want to kill him right on the spot. They begin to beat him. And, and when they do, the, the Roman guard sees what's happening, sees the commotion that's happening on the temple court, and they rush out. Probably 200 soldiers come rushing out of the army barracks. They come to the temple mount, and they, they grab Paul. They, they rescue him. He's, he's about to be killed, and they, they pull him. In fact, they, they have to carry him. They have to physically lift him off the ground and carry him away because people are trying to, to get to him. And even in that moment, even as Paul is being drugged by the Roman soldiers into the barracks for his own protection, even in that moment, he stops them. And says, let me speak. And he stands there just outside the barracks and begins to share with the Jewish Christians and the Jews that are gathered there. And he begins to tell his testimony. He says, I was a strong Jew, just like you guys. I was the best of the best. And then I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. I saw this light. It came to me. And I was changed. And now, since that time, I've been going around sharing about Jesus, just like you other Jewish Christians, I want Jesus' name to be seen and known and declared. And he says, I've been going and I've been called to go to the Gentiles. And when he says that word, everything erupts again. Nobody, the Jewish Christians and the Jewish, the strict Jews, they can't agree on much of anything, but they can agree on this. They are not equal with the Gentiles. And when Paul says that, Everything erupts again. And, and Lysias, the Roman tribune, the man that's in charge of all of these Roman soldiers, grabs Paul, drags him into the barracks, and, and protects him again from this riot that has erupted there on the temple courts, outside the temple courts. And so, and so he brings him in. Lysias wants to know what's going on with Paul, and so he decides what he's going to do is he's going to beat the truth out of Paul, and he straps him up in order to flog him. And just as he's getting ready to flog him, Paul says to the man that's about to flog him, is this what you are to do to a Roman citizen? And everything stops. You cannot flog a Roman citizen. You have, there's, there's rules about how they're to be tried and how they're to be accused and who's supposed to judge them. Roman citizenship is precious. And Paul, in that moment, is rescued from this flogging because of his citizenship in Rome. Lysias quickly grabs him off the flogging table and, and decides he, he still needs to know what's going on. Why, is Paul, why does everybody hate Paul? Why, why are they trying to kill this man? And so he wants to know what the truth is, and so he decides, Lysias decides, that instead of flogging Paul, which is now off the table because of Paul's Roman citizenship, now, instead of that, he's taking him to the Sanhedrin. 
And he's going to meet with the Jewish leaders, and he's going to have a trial there with the Jewish leaders. He's going to let them question Paul, and Lysias will be able to see then what is making everyone so upset about Paul and what he's bringing into Jerusalem. And so, that's what they do. They haul him in in front of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is gathered there. The, the leaders of the temple, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are gathered there together, and, and they come to question Paul. And even as that begins, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, that begins with, with Paul speaking, and, and one of the, the Ananias, the high priest, has one of the guards slap him across the face, if you remember that story. And in the midst of that, Paul sees, he knows who this group is. He knows who's on the Sanhedrin. He knows that there's a division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about the resurrection and about whether or not there can be a resurrection from the dead and whether or not there can be an appearance um, by God or by angels to men. And they know that that's a part of Paul's testimony. And Paul jumps right away as he begins to share to the Sanhedrin, jumps right away to the resurrection. And right away, right away, there becomes this division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In fact, the Pharisees begin to argue on Paul's behalf. They're, they're the ones that were calling for his head earlier, but now they're arguing on his behalf because they say it, it's true. He could have. He could have been, had, had a vision. There could have been an angel that appeared to him. There is the hope of a resurrection. And the Sadducees, they're actually the, the leaders. They're the main part of the Sanhedrin. Ananias, the high priest, is a Sadducee. They're adamant that there cannot be a resurrection from the dead, that there is no angels that appear, those visions, those kinds of things. And so there, just huge disruption comes. And Paul uses this misdirection within the Sanhedrin, again, to protect and save himself. The riot gets so big that once again, Lysias is there, the, the leader of the Roman guards. Lysias is there and he grabs Paul and again hauls him out to protect him, to save his life because of this uproar that's happened within the Sanhedrin. And Paul gets rescued first by his Roman citizenship. Second, he gets rescued by his own cunning, by his own ability to twist and turn that group in the Sanhedrin. But then we saw here in the middle of chapter 23 the true rescue, the true security that Paul actually can find hope in. It's not. It's not in his citizenship in Rome. It's not in his own cunning, but instead we find it in verse 11 of chapter 23. The following night, right after all this has happened, the Sadducees and the Pharisees have come against each other. Paul's been drug out by the guards. The following night in verse 11, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. If you're looking at your own Bible there, and if, and if, if it's a, a red letter Bible, you see that those letters take courage, for it is, it is, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You'll see those red, those letters are in red in your Bible. That's Jesus talking to Paul. Jesus himself says, take courage, be of strong faith. You're going to be fine. You're going to go, not just here in Jerusalem are you going to share about me, but you're going to go on to Rome. And so now, Paul can have a settledness here in Jerusalem. He doesn't have to rest on his ability to, to claim Roman citizenship right before he's flogged. He doesn't have to, to rest on his ability to, to mix up and twist up the Sadducees and the Pharisees who are going at each other. He doesn't have to rest in those things 
Now he can rest in this promise that's come directly from Jesus as he's met with him that night. And so it appears, it seems, that Paul, Paul is now invincible here in Jerusalem. He doesn't need to worry. He's settled. There's been a promise that's come from Jesus himself to Paul. And so let's read and see what happens now. If you remember, verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and says, take courage. You testify to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And then we continue on in chapter 23, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There was more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we're ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and he entered the barracks and he told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring you this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though you were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when he came upon them and the soldiers and rescued them. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and having desired to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers... According to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipas. Antip, uh, Antipas, we'll say, let's leave it there. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. When they'd come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and he learned that he was from Cilicia. He said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded at Herod's Praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. 
By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined the charge, affirming that all of these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple and without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation. Should they have anything, they should make an accusation, should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he be put in custody and have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. But at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul gets a promise directly from Jesus. Jesus says, take courage, don't worry. You're going to go to Rome. You've spoken here in Jerusalem. You're going to go to Rome. I, I will be with you, is the idea. Jesus himself has given a promise to Paul. And the next day, Paul, seemingly secure, the next day, 40 zealous Jews decide that it's time to end Paul's life. The very next day, the word begins to spread that 40 men, 40 men have decided they're not gonna eat, they're not gonna drink, they're not gonna do anything until they're able to ambush and kill Paul. There's 40 of them because they know that Paul is going to be transported around by Roman guards and there's 40 men who are willing to give their lives to make sure that at least one of them gets through the guards and kills Paul when he's being brought back to trial before the Sanhedrin. Forty men are ready to kill Paul. And in the midst of that, we hear something that we haven't heard anywhere else in the book of Acts, really anywhere else in the New Testament, we hear that Paul has some family. Paul's nephew, the son of his sister, hears what's happening. He hears about this plan from the assassins to have Paul killed. 
We don't know anything. We don't know anything about Paul's family. We can make some assumptions based on what we know about Paul and about his life. We have some assumptions that Paul probably comes from a fairly wealthy family. We know that they were able to send him from Cilicia to Jerusalem. He was trained in the, in the school of Gamaliel, we've learned earlier. He, he became one of the, the greatest of the Pharisees, and so he probably had some, some kind of money in his family background. In fact, commentators probably say that's even why his nephew is able to be here in Jerusalem at this time as well, is that the family has some money and is able to send the boys, at least, off to Jerusalem for some training. And so, Paul's nephew, who we don't know anything about, is there. And here's this. We assume, we assume that Paul is probably a, 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 at least a younger boy because, because Lysias, when he wants to hear what the boy has to share, he grabs him by the hand and takes him by the hand to hear the story, which probably gives us a picture that it might be someone that's younger. And this boy begins to share about the 40 assassins that are ready to take care of Paul. We don't know about Paul's family. We don't even know what kind of connection they have. We don't know if Paul's nephew had been visiting him there in the prison. In fact, what we probably assume is because Paul's family was Jewish and because they were so tied to that idea of the, of the boys coming down, being trained in the school with the Pharisees, that they probably, Paul's family probably has cut him off both financially and relationally. They probably don't have a relationship with him. And, and, we, and we get that idea even from some of Paul's writing when he talks about all of the things that he counts as loss. He can think of actual relationships, of actual financial benefits that he would have had if he had stayed where he was previously in his Jewish life. But he couldn't. I count all of those things as lost. I count all of those things as rubbish so that I can follow Jesus. And so, his nephew hears. We don't have any idea what their relationship is. We don't have any idea any of those things, but his nephew comes and his nephew shares with Lysias exactly what's about to happen. God seemingly uses what we assume to be broken family relationships and a small boy to protect Paul in this moment here in Jerusalem. God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty knows no bounds. He makes a promise one night to Paul, take courage. You're gonna go to Rome. You're gonna share in Rome. He makes a promise and he accomplishes that promise no matter what. No matter that the next morning, 40 men decide they're gonna give their lives to make sure that Paul dies. God's sovereignty knows no bounds. He uses a little boy, but he also uses more than that. He uses 200 Roman soldiers, 70 Roman horsemen, and 200 Roman spearmen. Can you imagine the sight of that? It's nine o'clock at night. It's the third hour. It's nine o'clock at night, and the, the Roman tribune, Lysias, is gathering up 200 infantrymen, 200 spearmen, and 70 Roman soldiers on horses and gets a couple of horses for Paul as well because Paul has to get out of there quick. We don't have any idea for sure how many soldiers were there in Jerusalem, but, but it was probably somewhere around four to 500. And so half 
half or more of the soldiers that should have been there were now being sent off with Paul to make sure he can get out of town. God's sovereignty knows no bounds. He makes a promise and he does accomplish it. So in the middle of the night, 470 soldiers and Paul begin to make a trip out of Jerusalem, down the hill, off to Caesarea. They get about 35 miles out of of Jerusalem on the way towards Caesarea, about halfway there to Caesarea. And at that point, they decide that Paul is probably safe now that he's been surrounded by 470 soldiers on this march down out of Jerusalem. And so the men who are walking can turn around and walk 35 miles back to Jerusalem And just the men that are on horseback now can protect Paul the rest of the way. On their way, they take a letter from Lysias. He sends a letter trying to explain the situation. And as we read the letter that you saw there in chapter 23, he he shares pretty much exactly what we had read before. He leaves out the part where he had had stretched Paul out and he was about to flog him right before he found out that he was a Roman citizen. That part got conveniently left out of the letter, but for the most part, he tells a pretty accurate story. This man was about to be killed by the Jews. We rescued him. We found out he's a Roman citizen. We tried to figure out what was going on, but we were unable to do that, and so for his protection, I'm sending him to you, Felix. And so... Paul arrives in Caesarea, 70 men on horseback, guarding him, protecting him. He comes to Governor Felix. Governor Felix is is a character. We know a little bit about him because he was a Roman governor. We have some other historical documents that help us to know a little bit better about who Felix was. Felix was born as a slave. He and his brother Paulus were both slaves, but had grown in the ranks and had actually grown all the way here to to Roman royalty. Apollos is is actually in Rome. He has a cabinet position with Claudius. And and because of that relationship that they have together, Paulus' brother Felix gets sent off to have a governorship all of his own there in in Caesarea, in in that Asia area, in that Israel area. He's born into slavery and he is smart and cunning. He's a political marrier, Felix is. His very first wife that he marries is uh, Antony and Cleopatra's daughter so that he can get in with the rulers. He, he wants to be in high society. He wants to be known. He wants, to, he wants people to know who he is, and so he marries Antony and Cleopatra's daughter, he gets married then, again, a second time. He gets married then a third time here to Drusilla. This is the wife that we have here in this passage of Scripture. Drusilla herself, we see mentioned, is a Jew. She was the daughter of one of the Herods. She was a teenager at this time, and she was known for her beauty, and there was a little bit of a, of a story as Felix wants to marry Drusilla. He sees her. He, he recognizes her beauty. He knows the political clout, clout that he might have if he were to be able to marry her. And so he convinces her to divorce her husband and marry him. And so Drusilla and Felix are married. Drusilla, Drusilla uh, later, Felix and Drusilla have a, have a baby together uh, that they name Agrippa. 
And those, babe, that, those two, Agrippa and Drusilla, are later killed by the volcanic explosion of Mount Vesuvius as it destroys the city of, of Pompeii. So we know a little bit about Felix. Felix was ruthless. Felix was ruthless, especially as it came in, as, as his governorship here in, in this area. Uh, the, the Jews and the Gentiles were always having these conflicts, and, and Felix knew that there couldn't be conflict in the area that he was governing over, especially if that word got back to Rome. If that word got back to Rome, he would be taken out of the governorship. He would be removed from his, his position. And so he made sure, he made sure that 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 those kinds of riots, those uprisings, that they would be shut down quickly, and he was ruthless in the way that he did it. In fact, he was so ruthless that he finally, and we see this here in this passage, he finally gets recalled back to Rome because of, of how ruthless he was, that he was, he was just too, he was too far out there, and so the leader in Rome recalls him, calls him back. Do you know who the leader in Rome is at the time that he gets called back? Nero. Nero is the one that says to Felix, you are too ruthless. You can imagine what Felix is like. That's not the picture, though, that we see here in this passage. Felix, Felix comes and listens, listens to Paul. Brings brings the the leaders from the Sanhedrin, Ananias and then their lawyer, they come to have this trial before Felix. And Felix, this ruthless governor who does all of these things and, and, and we can't even describe them all, this man, he's the protector in this story for Paul. Because God's sovereignty knows no bounds. He uses little boys. He uses Roman soldiers. He uses ruthless governors. His sovereignty knows no bounds. He makes a promise, and he accomplishes that promise. Paul's in jail for five days. And in those five days, Ananias, the, the chief high priest from the Sanhedrin, he and some of his other Jewish leaders, they make a trip along with Tertullus, this lawyer that they have employed to come and make the argument before Felix. It was such a big deal that they couldn't even make this argument on their own. And so they hire Tertullus. Tertullus comes and he, he has this opportunity to, to, to visit with the governor, Felix, and he, he begins to just share, wax poetically to Felix trying to make it sound as if Felix has been this great help to them all of this time about what a savior he has been to the Jewish people. And at the end of that, at the end of that, he says, I have, we have these claims. We have these, these accusations against Paul. And he has three main accusations that he makes. The first is that he says, this man, Paul, we found him to be a plague. Some versions, if you have your own Bible today, it might say a pest, but the plague is a, is a better idea. We find that he's infectious. We find that we cannot get rid of him. We find that when he comes into town, he stirs up riots, and, and, and that's true. That has been true. We know it. We've, we've read about Paul's missionary journeys. We know the things that have happened in lots of these other cities. Paul has, his existence, his teachings have stirred up riots, but it's not true here in 
Jerusalem. He says, I have three claims. One, this man is a plague. The second, he says, is this man is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. A ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It's almost as if Turtleus can't even use, he doesn't want to use the name Jesus, and so instead he uses the idea of the Nazarenes. He, he, uses, he, he doesn't just say, this, is a, this man is one of the leaders of this early group of believers in Jesus. Instead he says, he's a ringleader, which we understand what that means. He's a ringleader of this sect, of this outside group. They're not part of us, they're a whole different group and thirdly he tried to profane the temple he tried to tried to break our laws he tried to break our rules and make the temple unclean they knew the roman authorities they didn't mess much with the temple and with the things that happened inside the temple they left that to the jews and they knew that they might be somewhat protected by that accusation but paul responds to felix he says, he says, I've only been, I was, I was in Jerusalem, I've, it's only been 12 days. Even now, it's only been 12 days since I arrived in Jerusalem, and I've been here for five of those days. So in less than a week, I wasn't even there a week, there's no way that I could start a riot in just those seven days or six days that he had been there. I didn't have time to start a riot. He says, I do confess, though, Paul says, I do confess that I am a follower, not of this sect of the Nazarenes, but I am a follower of the way. He says they're correct about that, but it's not a sect. I'm a follower of the way. And he says I wasn't profaning the temple. In fact, he tries to explain I was attempting to purify myself. I was trying to obey and follow the laws and the rules of the Jewish leaders of these men. I was trying to do what they had called me to do, what they have called people to do. And then he even goes on to say, I was trying to do that when others, not even the ones that are here, but when these others, these Asian Jews, when they accused me of wrongdoing. They're the ones that should be here. They're the ones that should be facing me for accusation. And so Felix hears that. And he makes a a non-decision decision. He puts it off. He doesn't make a decision. He says, you know what? We're going to wait. We're going to put Paul back in jail. We're going to ask Lysias, the one who wrote the letter, if you remember, and and spelled out everything basically that he knows. We're going to wait for him to come back, and I won't make any kinds of decision at that point. He does give Paul much liberty, much freedom. He won't restrict visitors from coming in. He's, He's locked up. He's confined, but he has much freedom in the midst of that. Even in that, we see that God's sovereignty knows no bounds. That God makes promises and accomplishes the promises that he gives. Commentators tell us that in this two-year period where, where Paul is locked up in jail but has lots of freedom, people can come in and out, people can come and, and meet his needs and, and take care of him. It's during those two years, probably, that Paul and Luke now are together and they're gathering information. People are coming in. They're, they're sharing. Luke is able to do many of his interviews probably during that time so that he can gather the information of the books when he writes the book of Luke and the book of Acts, that continued story. Luke uses most of this time here in these two years to begin to compile that information, to do the interviews that he's doing, to gather that. Because God's sovereignty has no bounds. He makes promises and he accomplishes them.
while Paul is under arrest in Caesarea Felix and, and Drusilla, his wife, they know a little bit about the way. She is Jewish. She has an understanding that, that lots of Romans do not have. And they send for Paul, and they want to hear him speak. And Luke tells us here in Acts that, that Paul does speak to them. He speaks, about, he speaks about righteousness, he speaks about self-control, and he speaks about the coming judgment. You can imagine that Paul speaks about the gospel. A holy God and an unholy people. A righteous God and an unrighteous people. Who left to themselves will continued in that downward spiral running from God. Their self-control is lacking. And so God works in them so that they might be made holy. So that they might, on the day of judgment, stand confidently before God. He shares that multiple times, it tells us, over and over. And as he shares it, Luke tells us Felix is alarmed, is the word that Luke uses. Other versions say that Felix trembles as he hears what Paul has shared. The truth, the truth is coming through. Felix hears it. Felix is alarmed and is trembled as he hears it. But Felix continues to call Paul up. He continues to bring him up. He's hoping that Paul or some of the the friends of Paul, Paul has lots of people that are coming in and visiting to him and attending to his needs there while he's confined. They're hoping that somehow in the midst of all of that, Paul will be able to raise up some money and give Felix a bribe. And so Felix calls him up often, calls him up when he has opportunity. Other versions might say, when it's convenient, Felix calls him up, hoping for a bribe, looking for some kind of reward, looking for some kind of treasure that he might be able to get from those who are close with Paul, hoping, hoping that he can amass some kind of wealth to secure his future. Two years pass as all of this happens. Again, two years in a verse happens in this passage. And Felix is finally recalled by Nero to go back to Rome. We don't know. We don't know what happened to Felix as far as how he responded to the words of Paul. We know he was alarmed. We know he was trembled. We, we assume that he doesn't totally understand or at least accept the gospel as Paul presents it. But now, Paul is left in the hands of Festus. That's where we'll come to in this next passage. We'll jump into that next week. The worship team is going to come this morning. I just want to leave you with a couple of applications that we've looked at in this passage. Maybe today, maybe today you're having a hard time resting in the promises that you know about God and his sovereignty. You're certain, you're certain that he's given you a promise. You're certain that you can read through his word and find the promises of scripture. But you read them, you remind yourself of them, but the next morning, 
assassins are lined up against you. And authorities make up stories about you and you're left waiting in limbo until it's convenient for someone else's schedule for you to be heard. And even then, when, when they do call you up, it's all about them and not about you. I want to remind you this morning that God's sovereignty has no bounds. He makes promises and he accomplishes them through boys and soldiers and cunning and ruthless governors. Maybe today, the second application is that maybe today, you've heard and you know the truth. But all that you do when you hear it, when you know the truth of the gospel, you've you've heard it, but you haven't connected to it. So far, all it's done for you has made you alarmed and tremble. And your response has been, I understand it. I hear what you're saying, but when it's more convenient for me, when I have opportunity, when the time is better, I'll deal with it at that point. Felix ultimately, it appears, doesn't have the opportunity to make right on the words that he's heard from Paul. And so my application for you this morning is that there's no better time than right now to deal with righteousness and self-control and the day of judgment. There's no bribe that's gonna come and fatten your pocketbook and give you some kind of treasure to hold on to for the future, but instead, the purchase for you has already been made. The price for you has already been paid this morning. Jesus has made a way for you to have your sins forgiven. And today is the day for you to rest in that. Today is the day for you to trust in that. Today is the day for you to hope in that. Not when it's convenient, not when you have opportunity, but today is the day for salvation. So call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved this morning. Worship team is going to lead us. We're going to sing. Will you please stand with me this morning? So 
this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thank you for coming. 